Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris Scribble. Chris, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Hello. Hello. So can we start by uh, asking you to say a little bit about yourself and what made you want to come onto the podcast? Certainly. Um, so I currently, my job is the chief exec of National Centre for Writing based in Norwich at Dragon Hall and also the Norwich UNESCO City of Literature designation. I think I, I, I've always... Uh, the, the issues, concepts, debates around masculinity have always had a particular relevance to me as a gay man growing up in the 1980s in the Northeast. I've had a very particular trajectory kind of going through that particular era through to the 90s and the noughties and then the change in gender politics that has really kind of swept across kind of parts of the world at least over the last five or six years as well it's just been a really interesting period to experience the change in public perceptions and how that's kind of had its own impact on my life I think yeah I think that's probably why I'm interested in the subject I studied um, philosophy and German at university and I was always particularly interested in uh, philosophy of language and the construction of identity and the destruction of identity in and by and through language games. And that's sort of been an abiding interest really for me. Um, so it kind of comes together in lots of ways in in kind of in, in the concept of not just masculinity, but whatever femininity, the opposite or, you know, the non, the lack of binary that exists between gender roles in reality and how we are conditioned in society. I, I just find it a fascinating interplay of power, language, culture, really. Can I ask you to say a little bit more about that really interesting phrase, that construction and destruction of identity through language games? Uh, I'd love to hear a little more about that. Um, I kind of I love words, um, language, stories. Um, books is my books are my world. They've been kind of the constant thread throughout my life. I'm a really linguistic person. If someone sits me down and says right we're going to express our feelings in clay I am likely to go get the fuck out of my house Uh, if they say we're going to have a 45 minute conversation using all the words you can think of I'll go hooray I feel very wedded (laughs) to words and kind of linguistic expression Um, and for that reason I've always been really fascinated by the fact that language informs and kind of forms and malforms our identities but we also can't escape it and trying to escape language and be going beyond language and the lack of objectivity that is inherent in being stuck in language. It's just a brilliant tension which 
kind of really is a, a really helpful for me metaphor of kind of being human, being kind of subject to both the tyranny and the kind of absolute marvelousness of our condition is echoed in the fact that language is an amazing tool, but it also pins us down. Yeah, I love that sentiment so much. I've never heard that expressed before, that language is a lovely metaphor for being human. In that sense, it's the only way we can understand ourselves, but it com- it complicates how we understand ourselves because of its failings. Yeah, it's it's like sort of you, you can't get beyond the lens of language to mix metaphors really badly. <laughs> I love a mixed metaphor. Thank you. Good. I, I think quite a few are going to come down the line at you. Well, I'll bat them back with my own, I'm sure. <laughs> So you said books have been a constant in your life. Can you remember when you first found books? I can't remember not kind of having books lined up and ready to go. Um, We didn't have a lot of books in my house as a young child. At least I don't remember them. I've been thinking about this. Um, We we had a, um, a big cupboard in our living room and on the top shelf there was some sort of I, th- I thought were really fancy leather bound Charles Dickens old Charles Dickens books you know when I got to about 17 or 18 I realized they were sort of 1976 plastic book club editions that had gone up there in 74 and hadn't moved since but I genuinely thought this was the version of a country club library in my house but I didn't read those in fact I never really read those to be honest I tried several times but what I do remember is the library and Newburn Village Library where I used to be taken all the time and my school library and being slightly sort of impatient as a seven-year-old we had some sort of reading scheme at work at school (laughs) I thought of it as work even then it's my job going to school Uh, I was very good at my job as a child Um, and we had this reading scheme and the very top level of the reading scheme was violet you were on violet books and I had just read all the violet books and I wanted more and the teacher said there just aren't any and I just remember being very upset by that (laughs) I love that violet books being the top uh, of the reading list great Exactly. Yeah. Can I ask about your relationship with your masculinity and your awareness of being a boy around seven, at that age when you said you were reading voraciously? Um, yeah. How did you understand your gender identity at that age, and was that being reflected and refracted through your reading and your living in the northeast? Uh, it absolutely wasn't refracted through my reading. <laughs> Uh, at that point, um, well, that, that's perhaps not entirely true, but let's just say that I wasn't, um, we weren't in the world of kind of a diverse array of kind of differently gendered role models in children's literature with which one, with whom one could identify. Mm. Um, I was fairly clear from the age of seven, eight, nine that I was gay. Mm. I don't know if I had a word for it at that point, but I, I don't think I was ever really in any doubt. I never certainly... Um, felt doubt about it in the slightest. I felt a lot of things, mostly um, fear and anxiety and kind of physical threat, (laughs) but not doubt. Um, So I I kind of, from a very early age, perhaps a bit later than six or seven, but certainly down the line, I identified books as a place where the only place where I could kind of identify people who were different or who might be a bit like me or who might sort of say some of the things that I was almost too scared to admit to feeling. Um, But even as a younger child than that, um, you know, God, I I hope somewhere in the world Murray Nelson's listening, because I did love him at the age of eight really deeply as a a child. (laughs) 
Um, but I think he went into the army. There you go. Um, but I always knew I was gay. That was kind of, um, I grew up in a sort of dead ex-mining village on the edge of, you know, 10 miles outside of Newcastle in the, in the northeast of England um, that had both, I think, three working men's clubs and a really vigorous conservative club as well mm. um, and a very macho culture and very working class culture. Um, and that was what I knew apart from books and television, which was just kind of the, the, the promise of a different world. And that's kind of where books came from. That's what they did for me, really. Can you remember uh, if you could see any uh, kind of RuPaul has this really nice phrase of cultural lighthouses. It said when you're a kid, you can't say what you are, but you can spot it in other people. Could you do that at six and seven? Could you point out characters in books? You said there were people who were saying things you wish you could say. Uh, I don't know genuinely if I could do at that age. Yeah, um, I certainly could a little bit, you know, perhaps eight, nine or ten. I could start to do that. Um, and particularly, you know, it's, it's really, um, you know, I'm of that age group now where this, this period has been quite well mined in terms of kind of uh, fiction, drama, TV, theatre. Mm. You know, we've got, I grew up in the age of the gay role models or the public gay figures were mm. the John Inmans, were the camp uh, kind of characters in It Ain't Half Hot Mom, were the comedy figures of pity and kind of derision, but also their own power in a way, because yeah. no one was fucking with those lads, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless they wanted it. Um <laughs> but that that's what I had. And um, I think the challenge that I sort of found kind of in old, in my kind of later years, was trying to move away from the almost irresistible urge to despise those characters, which you, if you wanted an easy life, you kind of agreed with that, both kind of publicly and privately, and just kind of internalised that homophobia. Yeah. So that was that was kind of kind of where I was culturally. You know, there was some characters on, you know, occasionally there'd be a tragic gay character on a on a BBC drama, and that was about it. Can you remember how that shaped your understanding of self at eight, nine, ten? Were you just glad of seeing someone who represented someone that was closer to you than other characters you might be used to seeing, or did you think, oh God, my life might be this? I know. I was. I was. I was fairly certain. I was heading for kind of um, a future of disaster, trauma, loneliness, and public derision, which is a great, you know, really cheerful place for a child. To be, I think. That's <laughs> 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 so funny. I feel like I've plunged into a therapy session already, which is 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 fine. But I do. I have a very strong memory at the age of possibly 10, possibly 11, stood outside my kind of outside my front door. And I think I'd just been told I needed to wear glasses. Mm. And, and I have a very clear memory thinking, oh, great. I've got freckles. I need glasses and I'm gay. How much worse can this get? <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, having similar things with soaps. I think kind of as a 90s kid, I think you had the sitcom characters and then lots of gay soap characters. And I just remember seeing, again, everyone in a soap will kind of have a closeted storyline, be agonised yeah. by their not being able to come out, come out and then have yeah. so much drama about it. And I remember internalising that around 10, thinking that's yeah. going to be your life. You're going to have this secret sex life. It's going to be exposed and you're going to be shamed and ridiculed. And it, just again, yeah, the weight of carrying that in your head at 10. 
totally it yeah just... and uh, and the other the other side of it is that you're kind of a little bit like you alluded earlier um i became sort of not a lighthouse i kind of i wasn't looking out for the light houses i was more like kind of some sort of bloodhound i could sniff from a distance if there was any sign of kind of queerness about in a character or in a song or in a book you know anything I could just basically I could I I was alert I was absolutely alert for it Um, anyone who was kind of strayed out of the kind of the median bandwidth of kind of heterosexuality on a fairly kind of middle level was kind of pilloried and that counted for you know, that was the same for girls who were sexually active in any way that wasn't approved of, as well as boys mm. at that point, and men and women. You know, the policing was pretty hefty in, in that, in both terms of class terms and in geography terms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of the marginal figures were either ridiculed or physically kind of um, threatened. You know, you know, there, there, were, there were always stories of someone who had a gay brother or a lesbian sister. It was always kind of darkly alluded to, and these people would have gone somewhere or be kind of persona non grata in some way. Probably weren't. They were probably having a lovely time in Brighton in the late <laughs> 80s at that point and kind of really happy, but that wasn't useful to the community. The community needed outsiders, as communities always do, to make sure that there are insiders. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can you remember if you're seeing those characters, those sitcom characters, changed your behaviour as a boy? Yeah, definitely. Self-policing was an enormously powerful sort of um, influence in that point in my life, I think, in just kind of decamping myself. Yeah. And really sort of working hard to betray no sort of public, um, kind of publicly detectable evidence of gayness or otherness it was a really yeah I, I think you know again that's something that doesn't just evaporate when you discover your first Jimmy Somerville record let's talk about that then let's talk about moving <laughs> in moving into those teenage times and uh starting to find yourself a little more I do I mean I, I always I've, I've always had this lingering sort of um sadness mixed with pity for men and that sort of includes myself in it a way I always as a child I do remember thinking god it's just so much better Mm. to be a girl I just thought everything about it was emotionally more liberated physically more liberated I just I, I felt envy um but also just a bit of sort of muted disappointment I looked around at the men um, and that, that kind of changed, the culture changed a bit with kind of post-punk and my awareness, my growing awareness. I think my sister was three years older than I was and she sort of introduced me to the world of new romantics and Duran Duran and all of that world. And I just all of a sudden kind of we'd gone from the miners' strike, which was a very real kind of urgent presence in my childhood and growing up, um, you know, all sorts of for all sorts of reasons, and the end of that Labour government and the early and the early Thatcher government of the minor strikes. It was a very kind of um, it was a really physically vivid part of my life. We were taught our lessons in working men's clubs when the power strikes were on and the schools were shut and the teachers were striking, and then the minor strikes. There was a huge amount of kind of social kind of disquiet, and then all of a sudden, um, kind of I grew up enough to see kind of the new romantics come over the horizon and this enormous rejection 
of the basically the stereotypes that struggled to survive through the 60s and 70s that have been born in the 50s that burst through in makeup and hairstyles and just the world changed. It was incredible when I think back on it. Did that change your behaviour in that sense of you were no longer trying to decamp yourself and hide yourself? Did it affect how you were living your life? Not enormously, because effectively that was kind of capital L London, and we that's where we weren't. <laughs> and there were a couple of outriders. You might see a few people kind of, kind of with kind of yeah. dyed hair um, and... But that was about it, really. It was much later when I was sort of 15, 16, particularly when I was 16, and I sort of discovered indie music in the Smiths and found a way. Um, I mean, the Smiths were, you know, I got into the Smiths relatively late. It was They were still together as a band, but it was kind of just before uh, their final album when Strange Ways Here We Came, Here We Come came out. Um, and that sort of gave me a route into kind of, public display of difference which wasn't I think really terribly closely aligned with being gay either in retrospect I mean obviously madly but at the time it wasn't sort of explicit and and that kind of difference finding a way to be different without it being really dangerous both physically and emotionally was very liberating. Can you uh, remember what it was about the Smiths that pulled you in that because I've absolutely obsessed with the Smith still and Morrissey for my sins is still <laughs> kind of my god and it's something I analyze all the time what is it about him that chimes with people so much yeah. do you know what it is for you that kind of kidnapped you at, at 16? I think um, all of a sudden there was it was like this Venn diagram of a kind of morbidly self-obsessed drama queen kind of yeah. crossing over with um, kind of socially aware and defiant rejection of kind of a particular sort of um, Thatcherism and monetarism mixed with a really subtle but very clearly signalled for those who could see it kind of gender queerness and those three things overlapped and just and also again like it gave me a shorthand to identify a group of people it's sort of it, it happened at the same time as I went from kind of my O-levels or GCSEs to A-levels. And it mm. kind of I moved from fifth form into sixth form and all of a sudden found a subset of people. Instead of being in a year group of 300, I was in a cohort of 40. And you could see mm. the people who were like you. And I found a group of five people, four people, um, you know, and some of them, I'm in touch with all of them, and, and some of them are still my closest friends. Beautiful. <laughs> Were you still reading a lot at this time as well? Madly, absolutely madly all the time, yeah. At this point, I discovered, um, I think I discovered Edmund White at this point, A Boy's yeah. Own Story, and um, yeah. and Germaine and Greer, uh, the, yeah. through my sister, the female eunuch, and the, those two books in tandem uh, kind of just sort of um, absolutely shook me, I think. I, I've got a really clear memory of reading the female eunuch. I don't know how much of it I really understood at the age of 14, 15, but just not having any clue that it could be someone's job to read books and write things as a result of it like that, that just literally picked you up by the scruff of your neck and went, what the fuck? Yeah. And I didn't know that you could do that as a job or that that was, well, I did then. I found out that you had to go to university for it. And at that point I thought, right, that's where I'm going. Fuck everything else. I'm heading straight to university as soon as I can. 
and then I kind of I found I bought boy's own story i think i'd read about some something about it in the newspaper and i bought it in wh smith in eldon square in newcastle with heart going about 160 beats a minute sweating thinking literally that an alarm would go off if i picked up a game book (laughs) and i read it all the way home and i was reading it so avidly that i'd missed my bus stop and had to walk a mile and a half home and and i thought oh my god there are people like me and i am not there are ways of living which are possible that aren't going to extinguish me. Yeah, it's beautifully expressed. I remember uh, my media teacher in sixth form giving me a copy of Boy's Own Story after giving me Rupert Everett's autobiography and Tales of the City and just similarly kind of sneaking them home in my school bag, clutching my bag on the school bus so no one could see it, running to my bedroom and kind of devouring them really, really quickly, thinking, like you said, an alarm will go off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's both funny and kind of, terrifyingly sad when I look back on it but there you go (laughs) so did you know after reading those books as well that you wanted a career in literature and you could have a career working with language oh god no no not really I didn't really I've never really known what I want to do when I grow up um I think um I I sort of I told myself at a young age I wanted to be a doctor um and that sort of lasted until I couldn't sustain the lie anymore um and by that point I was sort of didn't really know what to do. I ended up studying German and philosophy and not having a clue. I, I just wanted to read and learn and uh, and move away from my childhood. I, you know, I had a lovely childhood in lots of ways, but I wanted to be shot of it pretty quickly. Yeah. And I wanted to run away to university, so I did. <laughs> At university then, how did your relationship with your sense of masculinity and sexuality change? Did you find, were you still kind of controlling that sense of trying to decamp yourself? Or have meeting that cohort of people given you that prior to not living truthfully? It's an interesting one. I think I've sort of yeah reevaluated it slightly. I came out to some friends between my A levels and leaving home for university. I was I think I was I was eighteen and two weeks old by when I left home for university. Yeah. Um, so I was quite young, and I was emotionally quite young as well. But I had come out at that point to some friends. Um, and so at university, I just, I didn't, I wasn't in, in that sense. I came out kind of technically and kind of practically straight away. Yeah. Um, but I think emotionally, it took me a lot longer. I think I was, um, I was, and to be frank, still am just quite annoying as a person. <laughs> <laughs> Many levels. Um, at that age, I was really interested in and committed. I thought I would arrive at university and find kind of a really interesting, active, kind of gay activist scene. Yeah. This was the era of just, you know, still in the period of ACT UP. There was still kind of, um, it was the era of AIDS and, you know, HIV was still pretty rampant and there was a huge amount of fear and there was a lot of anger and there was clause 28 and there were marches and and I thought I would find all of that at university and I, I sort of found myself in by accident or design or however I sort of found myself in rooms where people were saying well just being gay is enough of a political statement so let's all go out, go out to a bar mm. and I was just like oh, no, I don't want to do that <laughs> and also I, d- I definitely don't want to dress in stonewashed jeans I am <laughs> quite firmly uh, of a mind where I want to look like Morrissey as much as possible and all wear Doc Mart- Martens and leggings and 
pierce my nose and shave my head and all of that stuff. I do not want to dance to high any energy dance music. Now, of course, I love that sort of thing. But back at the time, I was like, nah, that's not me. Those clashing identities. I was like an, an indie kid. The tribe I'd found when I was in the sixth form were all kind of either goths or indie kids. And we ran around Newcastle with eyeshadow and hairspray in our bags, dodging kind of fists from people in the big market as we made our way to the only nightclubs that would have us and I kind of expected to find that in Manchester and the gay scene was really different and the gay scene and the kind of uh, indie scene just didn't really mix at that point. I remember too having such a strange relationship with what I thought the gay scene would be when I went to UEA so I'd grown up in sixth form reading about uh, Auden's Berlin and Oscar Wilde's uh, parties and thinking that the loft and flaunt would be like that Oh my god, Chris, I was disappointed. <laughs> really I just can't imagine why. I know. It was hardly the case. <laughs> Do you mean they just didn't have laudanum on offer as you walk through the door? Or what was it? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, because I, I can't possibly imagine what this must have been like, can I ask how it was being a gay man at that time of Clause 28 and that AIDS movement? Could you compartmentalise it and almost close it off and get on with your life, or did it permeate your life as I fear it would have done mine if I'd have been alive then? Um, it was... So there, there are some really interesting parallels to... Well, there are always interesting parallels between the past and now, wherever you the, you put the past and wherever you put now. What do I think about it? Um, I think it, it felt it, kind of direct political challenge like that is partly one of the side effects of it is um, a unity that can be incredibly liberating and a sense of shared endeavor whereas uh, um, oftentimes if there's no immediate threat or if the threat feels distant or, or diffuse then kind of it's harder to feel that sense of group identity so there, partly there was something about that at the time um, and you were part of a there was a kind of a, a sense of a bigger movement, a movement changing at, the, at that point. Kind of Clause 28 was just such a load of shit that everybody knew it, even people who like, weren't interested were just going, yeah, well, that's bollocks. Okay. It, it, kind of, it just wasn't, it didn't sort of, you know, I wasn't a professional teacher, so I didn't face the difficulties on the ground of it, so I can't mm. speak to any of that. But from where I was, it was a weird combination of understanding that or feeling that not only was I kind of um, finding a, the social moral challenge of my sexuality in relationship to my gender, but also just the, this kind of global pandemic as it was at the time. You know, that there was there was treatments at that point, but it was all it was incredibly difficult, and there was this huge wealth emerging of literature and poetry and evidence and witness about what was happening. Um, but also I was, I'd left home for the first time. I was living on my own in Manchester with my friends and part of my brain was just going, hooray, I'm here. (laughs) Can you remember who you were reading at that time? You said it was well documented in literature. Uh, Well, I mean, I think it probably took a little bit longer into the 90s to really come through. Um, But there was, uh, and I, I remember kind of 1992 I saw in a cinema in Berlin Paris is burning yeah um when that first came out and you know 
and that's that's a film that's just stayed with me ever since mm. and I, I watch it at least once a year ever since um but there was there was a lot of um stuff that you know Derek Jarman yeah. was writing at that point and it was at the period when he not long before his death mm. around that period um and there was the, the whole work around around his cohort of people and artists and writers and visual artists as well um at the, that point I was reading a lot of the big swinging dick Americans and and it probably took me a year to stop doing that and I felt such a relief and I've never gone back to them and never felt the need to but I just plunged into I was reading lots of German and lots of French and lots of Italian stuff and not in original language in, in translation and just anything and everything really it was marvelously political at the time though the kind of the the gay stuff was really wedded to the politics which I understood coming from the kind of the northeast and the miners' strikes and all of that. It made sense in a way which I feel it's kind of fragmented and fallen away from that in sometimes. But you know, I remember God, it was Reagan with an attitude. Margaret Thatcher's in the mood. Don't just stand there. Let's get to it. Smash the war. There's nothing to it. Vogue. Oh, Effectively, wow. we, were, we were voguing. We were politically protesting to Madonna. <laughs> we're here. We're queer, and we're not going shopping. Was the was the big sort of banner that we had, and it was kind of it was act up T-shirts and kind of group members and that sort of thing. It just felt very exciting for a period. I found that really moving to hear that, uh, as you said, whilst everything was going on around, there was also that sense of I've left home, I find my people, I'm here, and I'm just going. Yeah, to yeah. And politics is really important. And then I just gave it all up for tragic love. What can you do? I don't know whether I'm going to push that. <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> but then, or I can no, I talk about kind of that post uni time then. So uh, a big yeah. part of the reason I wanted to make this. Uh, podcast is I'm now 26 and feel like at 26 I've sorted some stuff out about my identity but feel that mm-hmm. there are lots to reevaluate and unlearn and relearn as I near 30 so can I ask about your relationship with your identity around that time of 20s mid 20s you'd left uni uh, well I hadn't had you not okay that's the joy no I managed to string it out for about nine years oh wow so I, I went I did a four-year degree and then a master's and then a PhD so, you know, I kept at it. I was pretty good at kind of keeping the old experience going. Yeah. <laughs> that part of what was underneath that as well? You wanted that sense of community that you'd found and that... Partly. I think partly it was because um, I still didn't know what I wanted to do professionally. Yeah. Um, partly because I think I'd spent so long desperate to get to university, I didn't want to stop being there. Yeah. And partly because I hadn't... Genuinely, because I didn't feel like I'd sort of got to the end of what I wanted to learn um, and I kind of I'd sort of the you know I had a really really fantastic master's year program where I just did far too many courses and read too much and worked too hard and but just loved it and I just thought oh, yeah I'm not quite ready to stop yeah I should have realized about a year later that I was and quit the PhD but I didn't there you go I have everything <laughs> But at that point, I, I kind of, you know, I was creeping into my mid-twenties, into my later twenties, and still sort of um, kind of trying to establish, just establishing myself in the city after I'd moved there from Newcastle to go to university and then stayed there to do my PhD. But you have a different relationship with the place when you're no longer an undergraduate, when you're living in, when you're working. I worked all the way through my degrees and you know, my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, so you, you became part of the city. Mm. And I mainly stayed there in the holidays, um, certainly after the first couple of years. Um, 
And it was just kind of establishing yourself as an adult with a different sphere of life. And, and kind of that at that point, I started to get a much clearer or have a much clearer sense of kind of some of the the benefits of kind of perhaps well I, I was never um I never felt negative about my masculinity in that sense I, I I felt very weary about some of the expectations around it from both men and women um and it, both in the gay world and in the straight world and I'm not convinced that the worlds are that different in many respects. Mm. Basically, I've always been pretty much convinced that people are stupid, full stop, and a, a very small minority are basically tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> so whether that pretty much cuts across all, all identities, um, that's a bit harsh, but you know what I mean. I know. Um, yeah. And so I, I kind of, uh, I, at that point, I started to realise that... Some of the things that I, I basically freighted a lot of expectation on finding a gay identity that would kind of transform my life. And I, I realized that, you know, there's a, there are many things which are as important, sometimes deeper and at times more important than my sexuality or my gender identity. Yeah. Um, and that came, it's more of a period of thinking about your, your practical ethics as an adult in the world who has to take some responsibility for things and and kind of just accumulating and accruing a little bit more trauma and difficulty and reality um, and coming from a relatively kind of untroubled background in lots of ways um, you know you, you sort of you get to live a bit more and pick up a bit more moss can I ask how that how having that revelation that uh, you you aren't necessarily going to find this uh, queer identity that's going to define you or save you or uh, that gender identity that's going to define you or save you how that changed your actions and your behaviour in your twenties? What did that do to yeah. you? I kind of uh, interesting, really. I kind of I I, I felt. Uh, partly relief of stop having uh, stopped having to try yeah. so by that point I'd sort of grown out slightly grown out I still had a sort of a nose ring and kind of dressed a bit sort of arty I suppose yeah. but that was about it I stopped I just let myself sort of relax a bit and just go to the pubs and the bars and the places where the people I liked were or that I knew and I didn't feel an obligation to sort of stop trying worrying about fitting in so much yeah. and I think I realized at, at some point over that period that it wasn't my sexuality or my gender identity or anything like that that differentiated me as, from other people as much as it was just my character yeah <laughs> I found that quite difficult uh, I've started having therapy uh, this year and that sense of I've blamed so much on gay shame to let me off the hook for things that are just part of my character uh, yeah. and finding that quite difficult to untangle but also really rewarding to untangle and it sounds similar in that process of you're searching for something to define you you think you found it and then actually uh, yeah. yeah it's not that thing there's a, there's a real temptation to for everything from kind of identity through to therapeutic relationships to seek an answer yeah. as if there is one answer to anything <laughs> yes um and it's it's not it's not the case um and one of my friends kind of 
was talking to me a few a couple of years ago and she'd been talking about some therapy that she'd had and she kind of told me that one thing she'd learned or one concept she'd come across was how you do anything is how you do everything yeah. and it became a really powerful means of sort of determining what was my personality and character and preferences rather than kind of what what I was creating around me rather than what I was experiencing or what was happening to me yeah. and it just became all yeah you, you do you, you suddenly realize that you have to take responsibility and that you create a lot of your own environment so having had that uh sense of awareness about that at uh university in your 20s jumping ahead now to your relationship with masculinity do you think you're now living that thing you'd learnt in your 20s <laughs> god knows I've, been, I've no idea i'm now I, I was 49 in august um and i sort of i, I kind of realized that from about 46 onwards i've been sort of gradually comfortably accelerating into a gentle midlife crisis <laughs> So I'm sort of still enjoying that moment. Um, I feel it's not a moment. It's basically it's a whole phase. <laughs> it's great. Um, uh, so I, how do I feel about? Where am I? Am I living the life I want to live? In some ways, I've I've created lots of really great things around me that I'm very happy with, mm. and in some ways, um, I am I. I'm still learning a lot about why and how I am in the world. I feel, um, in terms of my sexuality, I, yeah, I'm kind of, I think uh, I'm single. Uh, I don't have children. And there are things I regret about both of those things. And there are things I don't regret about both of those states. Mm -hmm. In terms of my gender identity, I've been thinking really quite hard about had I had the option at a younger age to think beyond the binary, mm. um, would, it, would it have helped me? Mm. Would it have transformed my view of myself? You know, it might have done in lots of ways. Um, I think there, there's lots of stuff around gender expectations and gender identity. The performedness of gender is a reality in different social kind of contexts and ecologies. And everything is useful in some way, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, it would have been really amazing to, to have the, the kind of the notion of this or that lifted. Yeah. And that could have been incredibly liberational in lots of ways. don't know how it would have changed my life. In some ways, it's not worth worrying about. <laughs> but it's quite nice as a thought experiment and quite... Um, I find it quite helpful. Not I don't spend a lot of time doing it, but I do find it quite interesting to just go and prod at that occasionally and think about it and think about the gains that have been made. It's not to deny that there aren't massive challenges implicit and explicit mm. in the world that we exist in, but thinking about the gains is an interesting perspective to weigh in with as well. Yes. On that notion, then, the final question I normally ask people is if you could go back and talk to your younger kind of male self and give them some advice, uh, what would that be? Do you think it would be that sense of it doesn't have to be this or that, or would it be something else? (sighs) 
I think the the kind of the underlying, you know, if I could literally pass myself, if I, all I could do was pass my seven-year-old, eight, nine-year-old self a note with four or five words on it, it would be, don't waste time being afraid. Yeah. <laughs> that would be it. Um, that would kind of do most of the work that I think I would like to do for my younger self. And I would love to be able to do that. Of course, we can't. Um, but we can kind of um, recreate the dialogue to see how it feels now. And it's a really good thing to do um, for lots of reasons. But I, yeah, I think I would say, don't be, don't be so afraid. I think that's a beautiful place to end on and great advice. Chris Gribble, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. It's been really lovely to talk. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.